All right. Good morning, everyone. Well, it's still morning. We uh, this snuck up on me that we are drawing to a close of Galatians, and so what we're going to do as soon as we finish Galatians is I'm going to do a bat- baton handoff to the vicar, and he's going to teach the next section. We haven't decided what that is, so we are looking in the New Testament at something uh, mid to shorter in length. And if you have any ideas that would fit that bill that you'd like to study in the weeks to come, uh, please let me and or the vicar know. And if you're online, shoot me an email, and I'll get a word over to him. But starting next week, we're going to move as quickly as we can this week and get done with Galatians. Starting next week, he'll lead us in our next study. So we have that to look forward to, and um, I'm very much looking forward to that myself. We left off uh, near the end of chapter 5, and of course Paul has spent almost the entirety of his ink in this epistle demonstrating that in order to be a Christian in good standing, in God's sight, one need not be circumcised. Christ and his cross are sufficient the circumcised and for the uncircumcised alike. In fact, Christ, through his cross, has put to an end this old world with its elementary principles separating Jew and Gentile by way of circumcision and observance of the code of the law. That has been put away by the death of Christ. We have entered a new creation, And then the question is, well, how then ought we to live within this new creation? And Paul doesn't say, well, we utterly set aside the law, so that means we don't live according to the Ten Commandments either. Love isn't important whatsoever. No, he goes on to say, as participants in this new creation, made new in Christ, we love our neighbors, and this is the fulfillment of the law. And he's going to go forward in the section we see today to go so far as to advocate that we fulfill the law of Christ, which is self-sacrificial love. So we will have an eye toward that and toward the concluding arguments of Galatians right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. If we glance back at chapter 5, verse 13, we will see Paul write, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve, douloi etta, be a slave unto one another. So, from verse 13 back very quickly to verse 1 of chapter 5, where we have a parallel statement. 
For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of dulea, slavery. So, in verse 1, what does Paul mean that Christ has set us free? We should stand firm, therefore, and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, he goes on to describe that. We're not to keep the law for the sake of justification. Whether that's circumcision or dietary laws or calendar, even the moral law. We're not to fulfill the moral law as if that's what justifies us before God. That's precisely what it means to live and be a slave, is to say, if I'm to be in God's kingdom, then I must do X, Y, and Z in order to be in God's kingdom. That's a kind of slavery that Paul forbids. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of Dulea, slavery, be free in Christ. We can think of this vertically, be free in Christ so that you are doing nothing to justify yourself. You are simply realizing, as Paul goes on to say, that it is Christ who justifies us. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's Christ. It's not keeping the dietary laws or not keeping the dietary laws. It's not keeping the calendar or not keeping the calendar. It's not even, if we push the argument, it's not even, how well did you keep the Ten Commandments? None of that matters in terms of the vertical dimension of our justification, our righteousness before God. That is Christ and Him alone. Then when we get to verse 13, we see a different treatment of freedom. For You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So, if what was previously said was said about the vertical dimension, our relationship with God, here this is what's said about the horizontal relationship, our relationship with our neighbor. And so we are utterly free in terms of justification. We are free from all need to self-justify. What are we freed from? Here in verse 13 and what follows, we are freed from the desires of the flesh. We are freed from sin and our own selfishness, which is really the root of sin, in order to love our neighbors, love one another, love and serve, indeed be slaves unto one another. So this is very reminiscent of Luther's freedom of a Christian. And you can see exactly where he got it from. But we are called by St. Paul, as members of the new creation, to love and serve one another. And then look what he writes in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, antithetical to this would be the biting and devouring of one another. If you do this, then you will be consumed by one another. He then sets before us two different paths, and you're either on one or the other. And as a Christian, you don't want to see, I think it would be a wrong way to try to say, okay, well, if I look at the sum total of evidence in my life, am I walking according to the Spirit or according to the flesh? And you're trying to weigh yourself on this scale. And the problem is the one doing the weighing is biased, 
and the scales are thus biased, and you just end up in this quagmire of feeling like, well, maybe I'm not pulling this off. Think more in terms of either or strict categories, walking by the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. And we'll see what Paul is saying. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. All right, well, right off the bat, we have an articulation that this freedom we have in Christ Jesus is not a freedom to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not why Christ set us free. He didn't set us free that, you know, from the law in the sense that we, okay, you don't have to be justified by the law. Christ is your all-sufficient righteousness and justification. Therefore, you're free from self-justification. So you're free to gratify the desires of the flesh. By no means, St. Paul would say. So, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. These are the epithumion, usually are often translated as passions of the flesh. For the passions or desires, epithume of the flesh, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So, these things are antithetical. They're mutually exclusive. And that's what it means for us to walk as, as new creatures, is to realize that there is the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. And they're contrary to one another. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, the flesh is opposed to you as you walk in the Spirit, and it's going to try to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works, now, what does that mean by under the law? We're going to get there in a minute. But under the law would mean you're not subject to the law's condemnation. Okay, so what does it mean to walk up by the Spirit? Are you sinless? No, because if you were sinless, you wouldn't have to be told to walk by the Spirit. <laughs> if you were sinless, it wouldn't even be a question if you're under the condemnation of the law or not. So we have this sinful nature, this flesh with its desires that dwell within us. We want to walk according to the Spirit, not according to those desires. We want to be led by the Spirit. And if we're led by the Spirit, even those sins that remain in us are not under the, we are not under the condemnation of the law on their account. That's what Paul is here saying. Because Christ covers those sins that cling to us. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, which sensuality can, um, aselgia, be licentiousness, idolatry, which is exactly as it sounds, idololatria, sorcery, which has an interesting word, Pharmacaea, from which we get pharmacy. Medicines aren't here forbidden, obviously. Uh, but sorcery, using things for 
magical, quote-unquote, purposes. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, and then, yeah, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions almost overlap with each other, but rivalries, dissensions, um, divisions, interestingly, is erases or heresies. So a work of the flesh is heresy. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, it's a komoi here, which is feasting or carousing, which in the ancient world often led to orgies, but feasting and carousing, and things like these. I warn you, and this is prolego, like I speak to you beforehand, I forewarn you. I warn or forewarn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you follow the flesh and give yourself over to the flesh. You, in effect, put to death the spirit and cease to be a spiritual person. Now, that language is going to become clear as we move along and as Paul uses that language himself, but that's what's in view here. If you're led by the flesh, are you under the condemnation of the law? Yeah. If you're led by the spirit, are you under the condemnation of the law? No. And you're in the process of putting to death the works of the flesh and resisting the desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, as they come upon you. Indeed, we're going to see in just a moment the language of crucifying the flesh. So, so much for this idea that because we're justified by grace through faith apart from the works of the law and you're free in Christ, that means you're free to do whatever you want. That is a completely non-biblical, non-Pauline, non-Lutheran idea. It's asinine and absurd. All these things that Paul lays down as works of the flesh are also condemned by the law. A point that Paul's going to draw out subtly here in just a minute when he goes into the antithesis, the fruit of the Spirit, against which there is no law. So, once more, we're not set free to do whatever we want. We're set free from sin in order to not sin, in order to crucify the sinful desires within us and to hopefully progress in that crucifixion uh, from one degree of glory unto another, maturing until we become in, until we come further into that full image of the mature man, Christ Jesus himself, borrowing from other Pauline language. All right, what's the antithesis then in verse 22? But the fruit of the Spirit. So we have the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. We have walking by the Spirit and um, sort of by extension walking by the flesh. And then what is the fruit of that Spirit? What is the What are the works of that flesh? So the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, which of course we know from the Scriptures in Christ ourselves is the fulfilling of the law. I mean, he just said as much in verse 14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what does he say about it? The whole law is fulfilled in this one word. 
And we know from our Lord Jesus that the law, the entirety of the law is love for God and love for neighbor. So the very first fruit of the Spirit is keeping the law. Keeping the law so that we can be justified? By no means! Now you fall under the condemnation of the rest of the epistle, but keeping the law because we've been set free from sin. Exactly. Sin is lawlessness, and so to keep the law is to keep from sinning. So, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, and this is always foremost in Paul's theology, biblical theology, and we're going to see love recur as we get into chapter 6, but love is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, steadfastness might be a different way of saying faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if you're led by the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, against such things there is no law. The works of the flesh, there is a law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, interesting, because the the tense here, the aorist indicative active, have crucified the flesh, seems to mitigate, like, it seems to cause a problem with his other argumentation, which indicates the flesh is in us, it's a problem, it's, um, how does he put it? It keeps us, verse 17, it keeps us from doing the things we want to do. How can he then say in verse 24 that if we belong to Jesus, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? Here, this logic harkens back to chapter 1, verse 3, and this again is going to recur as we close the epistle. He's going to use this same logic and frame. So, Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So there's a paradox here. If we are, if we belong to Christ Jesus, he who was crucified, then we have been crucified with him. Our flesh, along with its passions and desires, have died with him. That is part of the old fallen creation. We resist that and crucify that and put that to death precisely because we are in Christ. We are in new creation. And because in truth, these things are already done perfectly in Christ. So there's the paradox. Are they done or not done? Is the flesh crucified or not? Well, in a sense, no, it continues with us. But in a more accurate sense, yes, it was crucified with Christ now that we're in Christ, and it's set behind us. That's why we're not under the condemnation of the law. So the paradox is precisely, is this work finished or not? Yeah, in one sense it is. Our flesh is already crucified. Where? When Christ was crucified. In that sense, it's finished. In another sense, it's a ongoing process, isn't it? That's the entire point of him saying, I say, verse 16, walk in the Spirit. If this were automatic, or not a problem, or not opposed by the flesh that remains in us, why would Paul have reason to say this? He wouldn't. 
So the fact that this is an ongoing problem and struggle for us, uh, he spells out. And of course, the parallel in Romans would be Romans 7, where he uh, really shows that uh, sin that dwells within us, we're to see this as an alien thing that we're fighting against, sin and its desires. So once more, 24, I think, is a beautiful... I mean, again, ironically, if we misunderstand this, it can strip us of comfort because we'll say like, well, I, I'm not certain that I've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires because I still feel them every day. And so you go, maybe I'm not in. Um, that's like the exact opposite of how Paul means this. Paul means this as a capstone of comfort. Like, hey, even as you're battling the flesh and crucifying its desires, and this is a daily struggle and you're trying to live the fruits of the spirit, not the works of the flesh, remember that you belong to Christ and thus you have already crucified the flesh with its passions and desires in him. It's already a finished work, and there's the paradox. Ongoing, but finished. Still an issue, but not an issue because you're a new creation. So that's the fun paradox that I think is being expressed here. And it's meant to be uh, comfort. All right, 25. If we live by or of the Spirit which of course we do, That's the as Christians we are baptized, and when we are baptized we receive the Spirit, and thus we live of the Spirit and by the Spirit, so much so that Paul in just a few more lines is going to call us spirituals, it doesn't, um, spiritual beings, spiritual people, but spirituals, it doesn't uh, immediately translate into English, but we are of the Spirit, and thus spiritual people. So if we live of the Spirit or by the Spirit, let us also walk of or by the Spirit. And this live would be really a, almost a justification sense. We were once dead in our trespasses. Now we have been made alive with Christ Jesus. We were once dead in our trespasses. Now we live or have been brought to life by the Holy Spirit, and thus, if we live by the Spirit, that would seem to be the, the justification side, let us also walk by or of the Spirit, and that would be the sanctification side. And again, that takes us back to verse 16, doesn't it? So we can see him once again closing out his argument with a kind of inclusio. So, again, 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, and can compare that with verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. And then as we walk by the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, this being conceited or boasting uh, becomes a theme, a sub-theme, as we move into chapter 6. But because we are spiritual, let us not look down our noses at sinners. And I think that that is something he brings out as we transition. Let's pause there, since we are at the close of the chapter, even though I think it's pretty artificial. Let's Artificial chapter break. Let's um, see if you have any thoughts or questions. Um, in verse 21... Um I'm not sure I understand the um, those that 
do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? Mm-hmm. What does that? Yeah, so, I mean, Paul doesn't spell it out in so many words, but a, once more, if you just look at the logic of the section, I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not desire the gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Okay, so we have these two things in antithesis. They're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 17, who's the you? The Christian, like qua Christian, the new man as new man. Okay, and doing the things you want to do would be like loving your neighbor, avoiding the works of the flesh so listed and doing the fruit of the spirit, right? So you've got these two things in antithesis, parallel to Romans 7. So if you want to know more, that's where I direct you. Okay, so we're just saying this up. This is antithesis. The you, properly speaking, is the Christian. If you are led by the Spirit, that's you. And what that's saying is, it's not like, hey, figure out, like, you know, weigh on the scale if you're of the Spirit or not. Like, this would literally be translated something, I mean, in, in terms of, like, how we think. It would be something like, are you baptized? Then you're of the Spirit. You're not under the condemnation of the law. Now, if you fall into the works of the flesh, are you under the condemnation of the law? Yeah, those works of the flesh are. But now, what if you give yourself over to this, to the, these works of the flesh? What if you give yourself over to sexual immorality? Like you as a Christian are pursuing sexual immorality. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? Yeah, we would call that impenitence. And then, if someone is pursuing sexual immorality, if someone is pursuing impurity, if someone is pursuing licentiousness or idolatry or sorcery or heresies or drunkenness or orgies or anything like that, you can immediately see there's a problem. And that's why he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the language of inheritance? That inheritance here is because you are of the spirit, you are sons of Abraham, sons of the Father, inheritors of the kingdom. But if you live and pursue the fleshly things, you show that you are of the flesh, not of the Spirit. That you are not of the inheritance, but rather of those who are going to be under the law and its condemnation. Does that at least make sense in terms of what Paul's saying? Well, okay, so most of these things listed here, I mean, yes, if Christians fell into these, I don't know, most of these things here are what we would say are like manifestly impenitent sins, and that probably is what Paul means. I mean, the idea here is that, like, a Christian doesn't slip and fall and, like, oops, I did a sorcery. You know, this is, like, you gotta, like, you know, get the chicken feathers and make the effigy and, yeah, <laughs> get, get the animal blood and, okay, and then, you know, sorcery and then I think maybe where we get hung up are some of the stuff of, like, enmity or strife or jealousy and we think, well, that just describes my old man. Well, what's your attitude toward that? 
do you hate that? Do you despise that? Do you want that to be crucified? Then you're being led by the Spirit. Are you striving not to do those things? Are you, if you fall into them, are you confessing them? That's fine. So I think that like some of those, just to our ears, is like, well, what's your attitude toward it? Do you confess it as sin? Do you wish to be done with it? But then others of these, and maybe most of them are not things you just, like you don't slip and fall into drunkenness in, in the sense of like, and I think what means here is like, obviously we're not pursuing um, a slip and fall into drunkenness, but that I don't think is the point as much as this would be like chronic drunkenness. Pursuing feasting and carousing that lead to orgies and that kind of thing. Like This is a different walk of life we're on. If you're on that walk of the Spirit and you were to happen to fall into one of these, I mean, think of David. He falls manifestly into sexual immorality so much so that he becomes filled with strife and even murder, etc. Okay, well, he has strayed from the path of the Spirit, and it takes Nathan to come and preach to him so that he's restored to the way of the Spirit. And you can even see that in his penitential psalm over the whole circumstance where he prays, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. So he's received the Holy Spirit once again, and he knows that on account of his sins, it could be taken away from him. So maybe that gives you a concrete example and way of working through all this. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's like just... I think it really fits the question of, okay, so if the law doesn't justify us, how then do we live? And the answer is, according to the law, according to the the fruits of the Spirit, against which there is no law, and as spiritual people, which he's going to go on to say. And that's our pursuit. If you find somebody who says, no, Christianity is pursuing these other things, you've got a problem. And that should be recognized to all of us, recognizable to all of us. Now, living by the Spirit, I mean, maybe there's a sense of becoming, like the danger would be becoming conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we're going to go into that idea a little bit more here in a minute. But just, we don't want to fall into the kind of, quote-unquote, spiritual competition that Corinth was so well known for. You just prophesy? You mean in English? I speak in tongues. You know, like this kind of thing. So, where he's just got to hammer home this point that love is what matters. Please. Well, I I have a broad question, I guess, here. This whole book of Galatians, uh, and I think as you correctly say, is anchored on those verses, uh, chapter 1, 3, and 4, where he makes the statement that uh, God is delivering us from this present evil age and our condition. And I want to link it back up to other verses in the Bible myself, and I want to know whether you think this is correct. Going back to like Ezekiel eleven nineteen, where God promises, uh, uh, I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone. Is that verse in Ezekiel talking to the way in which God accomplishes this change and transformation in us. Yes, absolutely. And, and does it also tie to the Philippians verse that says, he, meaning God, who began a good work, will be faithful to complete it. So, you know, it just jumps out at me that it's nothing we do. God's working in us and he's giving us this new heart uh, and a desire to 
follow and walk in his ways by the Spirit. I mean, it seems absolutely like, right. Okay, and Jeremiah does the same thing. He, ex as as someone under the old covenant, the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, he prophesies of a New Testament, a new covenant, in which one of the key elements will be the law of God written on their hearts. Now, what we can do is we can see continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. Okay, the Old Testament saints clearly have the Holy Spirit, as I just quoted David saying, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me, which means he has the Holy Spirit. And so the Old Testament saints clearly have a desire to fulfill the law and do so to one degree or another, uh, confessing their sins and having the sacrificial system proclaim the forgiveness of sins in, in the Messiah and God's mercy unto them. So there's a lot of continuity there. But the discontinuity is highlighted by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others is probably highlighted most by the extreme outpouring of the Holy Spirit that comes on the basis of the new covenant, the death of Christ, which literally just shakes the cosmos and creates an old perishing world that's dying and a new creation and the Holy Spirit being poured out. They're, the prophets are seeing this thing happening and they're like, everything we have as, you know, faithful Christians, everything we have, faithful Old Testament Christians, everything we have and more, immeasurably more, a new world more. And then we all, you know, and that's really the, those are the last days because there's nothing further from God before the closing of the age. That's why you can say it's the last days of its, whoops, pardon me. You can say it's the last days if it's, if it's like, you know, one day or 10,000 years. It's the last thing that God's going to do. It's the new and final covenant. And so the outpouring of the Spirit, Joel, for example, quoted in Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit and the spiritual gifts and the law being written on men's hearts and this new creation taking place in the midst of the old is all tied to the Christ, to Christ's death and resurrection, Pentecost, etc. Yeah. So that's why that's really why Paul brings up this point in in chapter one, and then and then recur um, as any good author uh, as his as his epistle is ending, he continues to make allusions back to that, so that uh, you gain a sense of continuity in this paradigm shift. So hey. Why on earth would you ever desire to be circumcised to be justified? That's part of the old world. Okay. What's also part of the old world is our fallen flesh that was already crucified with Jesus. So walk in the spirit. You see, that's his, yeah, that's his sense. Please. Back to the questions on the sexual immorality and not inheriting the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, I guess as we understand it, if homosexuals and adulterers don't proclaim, profess to be Christians, they're going to be damned already because they have no faith. Okay, so those that are Christians and practice these things, if they're not repentant, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But if they are re truly repentant and sorry and strive to lead a new life, they can be forgiven. So we have issues, though, like the Catholic priests who, you know, they're administering communion, etc., etc., on Sundays, and at the same time practicing maybe homosexuality or sexual abuse of children. How do we 
deal with those kind of issues? Yeah, I think a lot of what Paul's saying, the I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The you here is plural and thus written to the church. I think that that's like, so if if you were to say like, hey, St. Paul, we've got this um, Roman priest who wants to remain a Roman priest while... Uh, being in an open homosexual relationship or something like this. Okay, well, let's deal with the open first. What would the what should the church's answer to that be? No, you're walking according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. All right, let's let make it a little bit less of a high profile, and let's just say that someone in a congreg a Christian congregation, whether it's the first century or the tenth or the twentieth, says, "Hey, I wanna I wanna divorce my spouse and marry a, a lover." You, what should the church say? That's sexual immorality. That's a work of the flesh, not of the spirit. No, um, such sexual immorality should not even be named among you. So a lot of what Paul's doing is defining the boundaries of the church's attitude toward these things. Uh, hey, I noticed that, you know, um, hey, Jimmy, the, the 20, let's say 20-year-old 20 college student who professes to be a Christian, I saw you on TikTok at a bunch of parties, uh, drunk and naked, and um, that's not befitting a Christian, you can't do that. Says who? Says St. Paul, who says that these are works of the flesh, and if you're of the Spirit, you should walk of the Spirit. Repent, confess, be forgiven, and let's not do that anymore. Okay. Um, the whole church, then, is unified in this, right? And so I think that's a lot of what Paul's doing. We, because we're, you know, 21st century Western people get all introspective and... Um, but that's a lot of what Paul's doing is just setting boundaries for the church that then bear themselves out at other places in the New Testament. You can think of the man engaged in sexual immorality and, you know, in Corinth. And, hey, the Cor Corinthians were saying, hey, that's just put away in Christ. That guy's forgiven. And Paul's like, uh, no, that's a problem. He's not walking according to the Spirit. Um, this can't go on. So I think that that vantage point can help us a lot. Now, what if somebody's doing something secretly? Well, then they should hear this statement of the church and repent and stop. All right. If, some, if a man like a priest has done something that disqualifies him from the office, he should step down from the office. If a Christian has done, done something and in secret that's disqualified them from being a Christian or um, made them so that they will not inherit the kingdom of God, what should they do? Repent, be forgiven, go to confession, receive the absolution, be restored into full communion. So a lot of this is prescriptive in terms of the church's attitude and treatment of these things. Um, and I think that that's a lot, largely what Paul wants us to do is not see ourselves as the consumer and look at the system and think, am I in or not? Am I right or not? But rather see ourselves as members of the church and where, that we all know how to draw the line in ourselves and in others collectively. And in fact, that's exactly the pivot he's going to make as he goes into chapter 6, verse 1, and he says, brothers, he literally means Christian congregation. And then he's going to talk about our attitude unto one another in regards to being entrapped in sins 
bearing with each other, our, our treatment of teachers, our treatment of all people in general. He's going to go into that next. So I think it really kind of helps if you zoom out and realize that Paul's talking to you, plural, you, the church. And I, then I think we would find agreement along all these lines. You know? At least it simplifies it greatly. If someone's constantly causing problems in the congregation, outside of the congregation, they're in the, they're just filled with strife, the church could go and say, that's works of the flesh, not fruit of the spirit. Can we rein that in a little? Can we help you rein that in a little? And that's going to come with, you know, if somebody's caught in a transgression, a brother's, or if anyone's caught in a transgression, then restore him, right? So that's going to be what's next. Yeah, please. Excuse me. Pain that I have in listening to the news. I'm a newsaholic. It's, it's what I do because of the family I came from. It's absolutely stressing me what is going on in the, with the, with the Board of Education, the teachers union, the um, Issues of my mouth want to be pushed out. Mm. The evil that is going on to have children say, if you, you know, you're, well, you may feel like a boy today, but you're really a girl. You know, mm-hmm. cute, your little smile is or something. You know, it's it is amazing how America has gone off the deep end with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got adults who are. Really of the little children is just causing a path that and it's the Holy Spirit need we need to pray for America is where I'm at right now. I'm just right. I, I'm grateful for having heard there is a an element in in the world in the political world mm-hmm. where parents are rising up and saying enough already. Yeah. yeah. And I'm it's the only encouragement I have yeah, there are those who who know this word evidently, and are are uh, standing forth for it. Yeah, I think I think that this, you know, indicates the strength that the church can have in terms of its witness. I I do think though, in a situation in a circumstance that's like co- it's parallel to this, but it's a concrete example: the man caught in sexual immorality in First Corinthians five. Paul articulates an important point here, and that is. Um, what have we to do with judging those who are outside of the household of faith? Um, judgment begins with the household of the Lord. So, does that mean we just abdicate the left-hand kingdom? No, that's not what Paul is saying. But who are we going to see outside of the church? It shouldn't surprise us when we see sinners who are living according to the flesh outside of the church. Now, we can combat that in all kinds of left-hand kingdom ways, and we should. And the church should stand firm and resolute and be a beacon of light into the truth and morality that God would have for all people, not just for Christians. But um, in terms of the church's business itself, there's a there's a shift because outside of the church, what would you expect to find? Fruits of the Spirit outside of the church proper? No, you'd expect to find works of the flesh. So just don't be surprised by that, right? But now where you find someone 
who is of the Spirit or claiming to be of the Spirit, claiming to be a Christian, and all they want to do is live according to the flesh, then it's the church's responsibility indeed to judge that person. Because inside the church, you should find people in agreement with the church, in agreement with the scriptures, saying, we don't do the works of the flesh, we pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? So then that, al- that allows for us as a church to find those in the church, I mean, or, you know, to handle the circumstances when it arises that someone inside of the church is living contrary to the Spirit, then that's what comes next. We who um, are spiritual should restore him. And in 1 Corinthians 5, there's an excommunication, and then in 2 Corinthians, there seems to be a welcoming back in. So that would be an example of someone being restored. Let's, um, for the sake of it, let's just go on a little further. So, again, verse 25, and there's really no reason for a chapter break other than the guy um, felt like it had been long enough, I guess. But uh, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, or an alternative sense, if anyone is overtaken in some transgression. I almost prefer that just for personal reasons, probably idiosyncratic reasons. But what it clarifies for me is you picture someone, over, uh, particularly a Christian here in view, if he is overtaken by some transgression. That is, you say the works of the flesh are having their way with this guy. Maybe he's fallen into drunkenness. Maybe he's gone, he's gotten in with a bad crowd and all he's doing is carousing and it started as an occasional thing and now it's a perpetual thing. Maybe, you know, the guy started out as a staunch defender of orthodoxy, but now there's a heretic everywhere and he's fallen off into obvious manifest strife um, or something like that. Or somebody's fallen into heresy. They're causing a doctrinal division. Okay, so brothers, if anyone is overtaken in some transgression or caught in any transgression, you who are pneumaticoi, this is the fun word that's untranslatable into English, you who are of the Spirit, or you spirituals, or you who are spiritual, as the ESV has it, should restore him. And that the language of restoration here is like peace back together. He's fallen away from the whole. You should restore him to the whole, piece him back to the church. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And that's not only tempted into the kind of sin that has overtaken your brother, but also tempted into what Paul has previously written, being conceited. Oh, let me help you, you poor, miserable sinner. (laughs) Not realizing that I'm a poor, miserable sinner myself. Uh, Not realizing that probably in many and various ways, I too have been overtaken by sins and restored by others. So I like the spirit of gentleness. I don't think that Paul always means we need to be soft and gentle. I think that 
What's the principle the the police officers use the least needed amount of force? <laughs> I think that that's the spirit with which he writes gentleness. We want to approach people in kindness and gentleness and humility. If they up the ante, we want to up it right along with them in terms of expressing to them the intensity of the situation or the importance of the situation. But of course, in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And again, don't narrow tempted here because tempted is manifold. Conceited because you're better. Conceited because you're helping. Tempted because they've fallen into it. Tempted to dismiss it because you've fallen into it. There's all manner of temptations. And this is something we probably don't spend enough time thinking about. I, as a pastor, probably don't spend enough time talking about. And that is that our sins aren't done in a vacuum. And so sometimes we just think, well, if I sin, that's my personal guilt. That's my problem. But our sins can have an even greater effect in terms of bringing a temptation to others. So I sometimes think, like to talk about sin that, you know, if Satan's tempting you into some manifest sin and you succumb, that he doesn't just say, yes, got you, and then run away. Now he's going to go to work. You've put the ante in into the card game, and now he's going to, you know, he's going to get his crowbar in there. And what he's going to try to do with that is pry you away from Christ. He's going to pry you into despair. You're on, you, no Christian has ever done what you've done. You're unworthy. You're unfit. You've, you're outside of the inheritance. He's going to, or he's going to put you into pride. What you did is no big deal and you should keep on doing it and, you know, everything's great and everybody should celebrate you and your sin. And so, you know, he's going to try to get you away. Well, the same thing is true that when you commit a sin as a Christian, again, we have in view here like manifest sin. Um, you're falling into something that like the community is going to find out about it. It's like, Okay, when you do that, you need to realize that in committing that, it's not like the devil just runs away. Now, through your sin, all manner of other people around you are going to be tempted. And that's a way that we don't think of sin. But like when I do this, it's like it's not going to just affect me and my spiritual wrestle. It's going to be a spiritual wrestle and struggle for anyone who finds out about this or has to deal with this. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind, too. And then this keep watch on yourself as, as you're trying to restore the brother, lest you too be tempted. There's all manner of temptation to be fallen into. Um, pastors, of course, we experience this all the time in many and various ways. Every Christian does. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm running really short on time. I gotta finish. Uh, is a quick question or anything I can? Okay. All right. Fair enough. I'm sorry. I've just looked up and realized we got nine minutes and twice as many verses. <laughs> Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is this law of Christ? It's, of course, love, but it's more than that, or more specific than that. The law of Christ is Christ bears our burdens on the cross, and so bear one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, loving them, restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. That's why Christ died to destroy the works of the devil and to restore us in a spirit of gentleness. So... That's why Paul has this idea in mind. If anyone thinks he is something, here's the warning again against conceit, the end of chapter 5. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I mean, all that we are and have is in Christ, and so we reach out to others with that same love, that same law of Christ. But let each one test his own work, 
And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, this is a difficult verse in some respects to piece out and understand, but the bottom line is, look, if you think you're amazing and are going to boast before God because you're better than your neighbor, is that a good thing? No, that's a bad thing. So don't be comparing yourself to your neighbor. Your boast isn't going to be in your that you're better than your neighbor. That's the last part. So let each one test his own work in and of itself before God, not against your neighbor. If you boast as if you were something against your neighbor, you're, yeah, you're exalting yourself. I don't want to preach Vicar's sermon for him. It's coming this weekend. And hold others in contempt. That's not what you want to be. So test your own work, and then if your own work is before God and you can boast, then boast. Do you think Paul really intends that? I doubt it. Watch, because he's going to go at the end of this about his boasting being in Christ alone. So I think this is a bit of Pauline uh, sarcasm. As you test your own work, not against your neighbor, but against the objective standard of God, do you think you're going to be boasting in his presence? Probably not. So it's an argument against conceit. And then verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Yeah, not only are you in love bearing the loads of others, but before God, when you stand there, you have to bear your own. So let that be a source of compassion for other people, that as you're putting up with their sins, Christ is put up with yours. If you would elevate yourself over and against them on account of the burdens or loads of theirs that you have to bear, remember, you've got your own load that you're accountable for, if that's the way you want to think and go. All right, so that has to do with our relationships with with one another inside the church, member to member. What about teachers? Verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with one who teaches. Okay, so that has to do with providing for the ministers. Paul elsewhere says that ministers who preach the gospel should receive their living from that preaching. Verse 7, more generally, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, one will also reap. Which, you can see how that might have to do with like giving to a teacher. And I don't know, maybe that's what Paul has in mind. But it certainly expands rapidly in verse 8 and seems to be more general. For the one who sows to his own flesh, there's the language of flesh, works of the flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption, death, damnation. But the one who sows to the Spirit, remember walking in the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So these two different paths set before us by Paul again. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And I love this, because doing good, very rarely do you do good and immediately see the reward for it. I sometimes think, especially in this country, in our context, um, pastors and Christians, our job is to be planting and planting and planting, knowing that we'll probably reap in heaven. <laughs> I don't. There, there might be very little to reap here. That's fine. Who cares? In due season we will reap. So we just need to not give up. We just need to be patient. This is the, the farmer is in the background here. Patient farmer. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
I think um, in terms of summarizing this, the, the study note on chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, the summary study note, is just one of the best I've read. Members of God's family restore the erring, bear one another's burdens, support their teachers, and do good to all, especially fellow Christians. An attitude of moral superiority closes the heart against the brother or sister in need. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me that I may be free to serve him and my neighbor in need. That's exactly right. There's just not a better summary that one could make of this entire section. So I commend that study note to you. And I'm burning ahead because we're out of time. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul usually uses, uh, uses an amanuensis. And it seems to be the case that he is writing the conclusion now with his own hand that they'd be able to recognize. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, that is, the circumcision party who wants them to be circumcised, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Presumably here, Paul means, hey, if you're circumcised, then the Jews will leave you alone. At least the Jews in the church will leave you alone. You won't be persecuted. And that's all they want. He continues with uh, just hearkening back to echoing an argument he's previously made, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why I think back in uh, verse 4 that this is Pauline's sarcasm. Let each one, each one test his own work, not in comparison to your neighbor, but before God. And then your reason to boast will be manifest in yourself alone and not in comparison to your neighbor. I think that that is to lead you to realize how foolish that is. Because here Paul says, far be it from me to boast at all except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, that's exactly the point made in chapter 1, verse 3. I won't read it again, but the whole point is that we would see ourselves as um, so one with the Lord Jesus Christ that his crucifixion is our crucifixion. And thus, when we were crucified with him, this whole fallen world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Then look what he says next, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor circumcision, nor uncircumcision. That's all the old world stuff. That's all the separation of Jew and Gentile. That's gone. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, which is precisely ours through the crucifixion of Christ. We've been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to us, so now we are a new creation. And in the new creation, there's no such thing as Jew and Gentile. It's the old fallen world. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, which I love, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Who's the Israel of God? According to his argument in chapters 3 and 4, Christians. Whether you're Jew or Gentile is an old world distinction. The new distinction is, are you Christian or not? If you're Christian, you're of the Spirit, you're inheritors of the kingdom. You're part of a new creation. 
Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul was beaten many times. He bears the scars of proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And so I love this argument. Don't trouble me any anymore. <laughs> Got the marks of Jesus on my very body. Then, of course, the, a very typical Pauline ending, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And a nice reminder that this isn't written to individuals personally, per se. It's written to the church. And thus, to understand this corporately probably gives us the cleanest, clearest view of what Paul has in mind in regard to these things. For us as Lutherans, nothing new, nothing novel, just good, wholesome, sound doctrine. We made it. One minute over. All right, here we are. So uh, give your ideas. Uh, if you're watching online and uh, you're not watching a recording way down the line, uh, send me your ideas. Uh, looking for a mid to shorter New Testament text. We'll have Vicar take over. Those of you who are here, tell me and or Vicar because we're going to put our heads together and get that plan. We'll have the announcement for you on Sunday and we'll see you here next Thursday. The Lord be with you.